Well then, let's get busy. Good to see you guys this morning. Uh, Today, we are looking in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. So we're talking about adultery, lust, divorce, and remarriage. And then I'm going to be gone for two weeks, so I'm out of here after that. (laughs) Take care, y'all. It's been good. We are a serious, uh, a serious sermon today, but then uh, truly coincidentally, I will be gone the next two weeks. Um, we usually do a vacation with my family and a vacation with Meredith's family and split them up here and there. This year we'll try to just put them together. And so uh, we're going to do a week at the beach with my family and then a week at the beach with Meredith's family. And so this could be a great idea, but also, you know, children get real tired uh, playing at the beach, you know, and in the sun and the heat and everything like that. It could also be a horrible idea. We're going to see how these children do uh, throughout two weeks of it. But we're, uh, we're just looking forward to get to be with family all together. Uh, our, one of our members, our friend and member, uh, Dave Harper, is going to be preaching for us the next two weeks. Uh, Dave has been a bivocational pastor for two decades and then some, and uh, so he knows his business. And I'm looking forward to uh, y'all hearing him. He's been here once before, but it's been several years now. Uh, and so I'm glad that he'll be able to be preaching for us the next two weeks. Now, while we're joking at the moment, um, I do want to first tell you, don't worry. Uh, Today we're talking about adultery, we're talking about lust, we're talking about divorce and remarriage. Um, First of all, don't worry. Um, While some people might uh, feel inclined while discussing this to uh, ease a difficult situation, uh, either uh, talk in inappropriate terms or even make crude jokes, uh, I have no intention of doing either. Uh, Rather, I have interest in being absolutely appropriate but talking about what scripture wants for us today. We, as we began looking at the Sermon on the Mount uh, a few weeks ago, said this is Jesus giving his quintessential sermon. This is Jesus declaring, here's what the good life is. Uh, Here's what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God and to be Christ's. So if you want to know the quintessential message of what it is to follow Christ, you'll turn to this sermon. And you'll note that the first thing that he said Uh, When bringing about his interpretation of the law of Moses, last Sunday we talked about anger. He said, you've heard from the law of Moses, don't murder anyone. But I'm telling you, the problem is in your heart with this anger and rage that we harbor against each other. Well, today, likewise, and perhaps just second in importance and right next to it, he talks about adultery, he talks about marriage, and he talks about relations in this way. And so they're awfully important to God. Amen. So let's pray and let's read and let's find out why this is so important to God. Father God, I pray that the reading of your word and the hearing of your word would be worshiped to you. Amen. I pray that we would hear and believe. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. Uh, I'm reading out of the Pew Bible. It's on page 858. You have heard it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give a written notice of divorce. 
But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except a case of sexual morality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So this is the word of the Lord for us today. Why does adultery, does marriage, romantic relationships like this, why do they factor in so prominently in God's way in which he wants us to live? Why is this so important? There are plenty of people that say, you know, why do Christians care so much about this? So much about what people do in private? Here's why. It's important to God, and it's a part of the way he's created us and wants us to be, so it's important to us to get right. But just like how we talked last week about how murder starts in the heart, you know, the problem isn't just murder. It is. That's a real sin, and it happens. But the problem is the hatred that we harbor in our heart for other people. So likewise, the problem is not simply adultery. The problem is the fantasies of adultery that we harbor in our hearts, the sorts of desires we entertain that aren't good for us uh, and don't make good things for us. Why is this such a big deal for God? Why is it so important to him? Because we as Christians understand that God's design of things, the way he created it is perfectly. So we go and we read in the first few chapters of Genesis about how God created things. And that's how we take our cue for what is right and what is wrong. He created certain things, everything, to function in certain ways. And he created others to not function in those ways. So God creates it all perfectly, and marriage is his design. Even before sin comes into the world, imagine that. You know, what was that like for that amount of time when there's Adam, and God sends Adam off to search the world, so to speak? It is that God sends Adam off to look and name and categorize all of creation and all the creatures. However long this takes, Adam goes and he categorizes and he looks around and he sees, you know, dog with dog, cat with cat, this, this sort of thing is what he's observing. Because then scripture says there in Genesis chapter 2, but in all the earth a suitable helper was not found for him. It's a recognition that he's out there looking around and realizing how God's creation works, but then realizing he's unique. He's the only one like him. And then God says... It is not good that man should be alone. See, God has been creating thing after thing, day after day. He creates and he says, it is good. And then he creates and he says, it is good. And he creates and he says, it is good. And then God says, it is not good. However, that this should be the only one of these, that man should be alone. It's not even Adam that quite understands the problem until God understands the problem and says, this is not how it should be. Let me create it as it should be. And so he creates one just like Adam, Eve. He says, Adam then says, this is the one who is like me. This is the one who is like me. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And scripture says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife. They become one flesh. Amen. The man and the wife, they are together, and they have no shame. They feel no shame at all. This is God's design for everything. It's good. However, with the fall, Adam and Eve's relationship is broken. 
You, you hear this in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 2, God creates it and creates it perfectly. Genesis chapter 3, they're disobedient. And certain things are broken by sin. And this is the nature of sin. It breaks relationships. It most obviously breaks their relationship with God. They're exiled from the garden, but it breaks their relationship with each other as well. Breaks their relationship with the land. Now it's going to be difficult, whereas before they were supposed to be good stewards of it, and it was all going to work well. And so immediately they're accusing each other before God and treating each other poorly. And this is even in the curse that God pronounces. And he says, now they will not work well together. So it goes, sin in a broken world. Why is marriage, why adultery, why are these things so important to God? Because he created them for us as a good for our lives and as a way for us to function well. And we, broken in our sin like Adam and Eve, simply do not function well like we were made to do. Paul talks about this to the Corinthian church. Paul says, you know, there's an attitude prevalent in that Greek society, and the attitude was food for the stomach, the stomach for food. Paul confronts this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. They have this attitude. There's, it's a saying that Paul says. He quotes. Paul says, I know you guys have this attitude in the world. Food for the stomach, the stomach for food. The saying means, you know, well, you get hungry, you eat stuff. That's what it's for. It doesn't matter. Just whatever you're hungry for, eat that. Your desires, they are what they are. And, and in Greek culture there, they, they put a hard line between body and spirit. And so all material things were just bad and necessary. You're hungry, you got to eat. Eat whatever. That's the way it is. But it doesn't matter. Food for the body, body for food, they'll all be destroyed. God will destroy it all. Rather, the Greek mind had their personhood as their spirit indwelling a body. So the body is what it is. You just do what it, it has urges. It has desires. Just go with it. And that doesn't matter as much because who you are is who indwells the body, not the body itself. But Paul confronts this. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Rather, God has made you for good things. Body, mind, and soul. God has blessings prepared for you and a purpose created for you. This is why, you know, we Christians, we don't see ourselves as ghosts in a shell. We're not who we are trapped inside some kind of random body, that you could be trapped inside the wrong or the right body. You're not trapped inside the wrong body because you are your body. You're not stuck inside of it. God has created you as a whole being, Amen. Uh, holistic and one together. You are spirit and spiritual. You are a soul, a mind. But you're also a body, all together as one. In fact, for us, if death means anything, the way we define that word is when the body and spirit are separated from each other. This is wrong. They're supposed to be together. And so God will put them together. Amen. So since we are all together and one, what we do with our body matters. We don't simply have an attitude of, well, you know, whatever. Whatever we do, it is what it is. You know, I've got cravings. I've got hungers. I've got desires. Might as well just fulfill them. Well, that's the Greek mind. For ours, in our culture, our culture so highly values individualism and expression that these, in this context of marriage and physical romance, these become, for many, the only values. Individualism 
and expression. That is, I should be able to express whatever desires I have, and no one should tell me otherwise. Expression, individualism. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Whatever I want to do, that's right. And so it creates a standard for relationships that is simply consent alone, which we all know is a, not a good standard. It, it doesn't even hold up under its own scrutiny. Rather, the Christian life begins with the recognition that my heart's not right all the time. But you don't even have to be a Christian to believe this. You know sometimes you're hungry for something that's not good for you. So it goes with all desires. We Christians believe that we're broken by our sin. It's not just that we commit sins, but that we are prone to sin. Our hearts are prone to wonder and do wrong. That we know off the bat, not everything that our heart desires, not every fantasy or idea that comes across our mind actually leads to good, actually leads to thriving. And so our standard is different. Our standard can't be, well, you know, food for the body, body for food is what it is. You know, I'm just a man, that's the way it is. But rather we understand that we are heartbroken, mind broken. We simply desire things that are bad for us and bad for others sometime. So not using desire or what we want as a standard for what's good for us, rather we have to go to God alone. Say, God, what is good for us? Amen. What is right for us? And in this, God has said, it's not good that man should be alone. And so it creates Eve and puts them together in marriage. And then it is good. This is the creation of God and the standard that he has for them. So when Jesus is talking about adultery, he's talking about anything that's not a husband and wife in marriage. And Jesus is declaring that anything else, it doesn't lead to happiness ultimately. It doesn't lead to thriving or good for the soul. Rather, the good life, the good life is found in following Christ and obeying him. What comes out of our heart is wrong. You know this. Sometimes we eat too much. What comes out of our desires is wrong. You know this. Sometimes we're just lazy. We know we're supposed to be working. Our desires are wrong, so they're wrong in this area as well, but they can be right in Christ. Amen. Further, know that of this Christian teaching about marriage, divorce, remarriage, romantic relationships, it's perfectly appropriate in Christianity to not marry. I mean, unique amongst all the historic religions in the world, it's perfectly appropriate for Christians to not marry. After all, Christ did not. And if you want to say, well, that was Christ, uh, then know that the greatest man born of woman, Jesus declares John the Baptist to be, and John the Baptist does not. Rather, Jesus says, you know, marriage is good for those who it's good for, but there are others for any number of reasons who will not marry, and this is perfectly acceptable. You need to know today, you don't have to marry in order to live a full, rich life in Christ. Amen. Marriage is a blessing from God, but it's not essential to living the good life in Christ. Rather, uh, you can live a full, happy, productive life without it. 
And yet, sometimes when we talk about these issues, marriage, divorce, remarriage, adultery, lust, you know, there's a story in scripture, the uh, story of the rich young ruler. And in this, a rich young ruler, a devout guy, he wants to be right with God. And he comes to Jesus and he's very wealthy and he says, what do I need to do? And Jesus says, you know what the law of Moses is? This man is Jewish. He says, you know what the law of Moses is? Keep the law. And the man says, I've done that. I've been keeping the law. And Jesus says, you lack one thing. Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then follow me. And scripture says that this man goes away very sad because there was a lot of things he was prepared to do, but he wasn't prepared to do that. He did really like being rich, and that was the one thing that was off limits for him. He, he wanted to follow God, but only in certain areas of his life where he wanted to follow God, not in that area. It's possible we're just like the rich young ruler. It's possible that you say, I really like the Christian lifestyle. I, I really like how Christians seem to be fairly happy folks. I, I really like some of this. But there's certain areas of my life, like my money, which I do with what I want. I'm not willing to turn that over to God. I will follow Christ so long as I get to keep doing the kind of work that I enjoy doing. So long as I get to spend my money how I want to spend it. Perhaps we're just like the rich young ruler. who say, I'd be happy to follow Christ except for that. But I might suggest to you, for us in our culture... Uh, The issue that we so frequently want to ignore is the passage that we're reading now, today, not the one about wealth. You know, for many of us, the one that we want to ignore is if we could just, I want to follow Christ, but I'd like to cut out this section. Uh, That God has a plan for me uh, about marriage or not marriage. That God has a desire for me about keeping my covenant in marriage or my freedom to be able to go and do what I want to do and marry who I want to marry. I, I'm not willing to submit that to God. I want to follow Christ, but let's be reasonable. And perhaps this is the area in which we would walk away from Christ sad. But I want to call you today not to do that. Rather, Jesus teaches a parable and he says, you know, the kingdom of heaven, what's it like? What am I going to compare it to, Jesus says. What's the kingdom of heaven like? It's like a treasure in the field. A man goes and he finds a treasure chest buried in a field. And he's so excited about it that he leaves and he sells everything that he has so he can go and buy that field and get it. So likewise, the kingdom of heaven is for us. It must be for us a treasure that we find so valuable to us that we are willing to do what it takes to follow Christ in all things. The good news is God never calls you to do anything evil. God never calls you to anything bad or disreputable. God calls you to the good life. But if we're going to have it in Christ, we have to be willing to obey him in these areas about adultery, about lust, about sexuality, about divorce, and about remarriage. So, Let us follow Christ completely in this, not receiving the gospel and saying, but what about what I want to do? Rather, let us receive it with faith, saying, God, I know this is the good life you have for me. I don't know how that's going to work out as the good life, but I believe and I'm going to obey. And you show me how this is the good life for me. The next question for us today is this. Do you need to gouge out your eye? 
an honest question. And Christ asks it here. He says, you've heard, don't commit adultery. That is, so long as you don't actually go and commit adultery, these people are thinking, these religious leaders, everything else is all right. Entertain what fantasies you'd like to. Think about what you'd like to think about. Dwell on anything you'd like to dwell on. Just don't actually commit adultery. And Jesus says, you've heard don't commit adultery, but I'm telling you, your heart is broken. And you can't go about in life entertaining evil thoughts all the time and expect for good to come out. Rather, we must turn our hearts and minds over to Christ as well. So Jesus says, be serious about this. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, to be sure, this is hyperbole. You need not gouge out your eye today. You need not cut off your hand. I'm serious. This, what Jesus is saying is this is serious. But after all, we've already acknowledged this is a heart problem, right? Amen. So it's not actually an eye or hand problem. It's a heart problem. That's how you know it's hyperbole. Christ is saying, you've heard don't do it, but I'm telling you what's going on in your heart and mind are wrong. And so if the heart's what's wrong, then the hand or eye is not the problem. But what Christ is saying is, if there's something that you need to remove from your life in order to keep you from struggling with this, then you need to remove it from your life. You know, it's one thing for us to say this is hyperbole. It'd be another thing for us to say that means we don't have to do anything about this, which is incorrect. If the right way to understand this passage is for, to understand Christ saying this is very serious, do whatever it takes to do what is right in this area, then we're going to have to be the kind of people who do whatever it takes to be right in this area, just knowing that uh, mutilation is not the thing, but rather... Let us take this very seriously. It is possible that you'll have to change jobs to get rid of temptation out of your life, to be outside of just a toxic or unhealthy work environment. Are you willing to do that in order to follow Christ? You might say, I'm more willing to gouge out my eye, actually. We must take this seriously, serious enough to change jobs if we have to, seriously enough to change our travel schedules or abandon a travel schedule, seriously enough that we wouldn't finish watching a TV series that we've been watching if it causes us problems. It just brings up evil thoughts inside of us, then what's the purpose? How is it helpful towards the good life? Are you ready to turn this area over to Christ as well? What books we read, when you have your phone with you or not, what you do at certain times of the day. No, you don't have to gouge out your eye or cut off your hand. But we must take seriously the commands to remove temptation from our lives. So what do you need to do today in order to take it seriously and follow Christ? Whatever it is, do it. Remove temptation from your life so that you can find the good life in Jesus. Jesus also talks here about divorce and remarriage, which is also awfully difficult for us. And it's awfully difficult for us because marriage is difficult. I mean, goodness, it's difficult enough to try and follow Christ being one person, but two people, both of them sinners, good luck, you know? 
and so it goes. Marriage is difficult because it takes two. And you simply cannot control another person. If you say, I struggle with self-control myself, then you know well we can't control others either. Marriage can be difficult for sometimes. I do like to always throw out to you uh, the joke at this point because I think about it every time. I want to say decades ago. Now, decades ago, I heard Jeff Foxworthy making jokes about marriage. And he says, you know, my grandparents, they were married for 60 years. 60 years. He goes, I don't even know what that's about. And so I went to Grandpa one day and I said, 60 years? How'd you do it? And he said, my grandfather just turned to me and said, it's easy. I didn't leave and I didn't die. (laughs) Fair enough. I guess it's easy. It's not, but it's funny. Marriage can be difficult because it takes two and we're sinners. And since the fall, as we've already talked about, we are each of us broken and sinners. And so we're not surprised when it is difficult together or when we sin. The hope for Christian marriage is that we would steer each other and exhort each other and lift each other up all the more towards Christ. And when you have that or you see that, it's a beautiful blessing from God worth rejoicing over. This is the goal, that we would lift each other up and carry each other's burdens and do what we can to, like Christ who laid down his life for us, offer our time and lives in order to lift the other person up towards Christ. This is the good life if you are married in Christ. And yet, many of us, you know, as we say, it takes two. And so... Marriage is difficult, and you can't just, being one person, will for it to work out. You can't, by yourself, simply make this thing work if it doesn't have both people in it. Divorce is a tragedy, and always a tragedy. We're not looking for condemnation for you here today who've experienced it, but simply grace from God. You're dearly loved by him, and he has good plan for you. You need not get bogged down in the past because the grace of God covers all of our pasts. We're nothing but a group of sinners who've gotten here together, declared that we are sinners, but declared all the greater that we believe Christ forgives sin. In fact, if we go to this passage and the very first thing you start to do is start to do math about how to justify your past or your future plans. You know, if, if the plan for you, when you go to this one, is to say, okay, I'm hearing you, God, but hold on a second. Let me come up with some reasons why I can either justify what has happened or I can justify what I want to do now and make it okay, then we're doing exactly what the Pharisees did with the law. That can't be our attitude when we come to this passage. So what is the right attitude when we come to this passage? Grace for our past, a choice to obey Christ for our future. This is what it is when we come to all of Scripture. Listen, for you who have sinned in the past in these areas, I have Scripture for you. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The old is gone, the new has come. The grace of God is sufficient for all of your past. So when we come to this passage, we don't look to do our math to explain what we've done. Rather, 
we come to say, Jesus, I believe, so what is the good life and I'm ready? This passage is for your present and for your future. So I frequently tell this and explain this passage to couples who I'm counseling before marriage. And I say to them, we open up this passage and we read it. I say, go ahead. I know you guys aren't wanting to talk about divorce. You want to talk about marriage. But, you know, under what circumstances do you think it'd be all right to be divorced and be to be remarried? What, what do you think? Because if you want to make a vow at your wedding that says, have and hold, love and keep, sickness, health, till death do us part, do you mean till death do us part? Or do you mean till death do us part? Or if you do anything wrong or break the covenant, I'm out too. You know, which is it? And I suggest to young couples whose weddings I'm officiating, you're not just making a promise to each other based upon the other person keeping the promise. You're making a covenant promise before God as well. Saying these are the vows that I'm going to keep. Yeah, things aren't going to go according to plan. But these are the vows that I'm going to keep. Because I believe this is the good life. And you're the person that I'm going to care for, whether or not things go perfectly whether or not we're feeling particularly close or not. You know, I was grieving with a friend this week who, um, it's a common enough story, you know, who his sister got married, the guys in the army went off to serve, they weren't near each other, they were apart for long periods of time, she spent time with old friends, he came back and it was hard for them to get back together. He seemed in her eyes to have changed and they decided that the marriage was over and to go in different directions. Again, a common enough story, is it not? But let it not be for us. Let it not be for us. The basis of all right and wrong, as we've said before, is not a rule of laws the basis of why some things are right and some things are wrong is based on who God is, right? So uh, murder is wrong, hatred is wrong, because God is loving and gracious. Lying is wrong because God is truthful and honest always. Breaking covenants is wrong because God always keeps his promises. And if we're going to try and follow Christ or be like him, then we're going to be a kind of people who keep our promises even when it's difficult. Because God has never broken his promises with us. And if his promise is that he is going to forgive you today, then we likewise need to both live in his forgiveness and keep our covenants. Listen, you can't always make it work with another person. But that doesn't mean that you can't remain faithful to a covenant before God. And I would say to you today as well, very important to understand, especially, specifically women, if you're in an abusive relationship, do not be around him again anymore, ever. I mean, if you're in an abusive relationship, this passage has been used by some evil people as an excuse to tell you you have to stay in a relationship where you're being hurt. Nope. Absolutely not. Get gone and don't trust again. Uh, don't be near or around that once more. But let us be faithful covenant keepers before God. Frequently we'll see marriage as a necessity or a necessary obligation that will fix our loneliness. You say, but I don't want to be lonely. As if that's like the worst thing. As if some people who are married are not very lonely themselves. 
We get to thinking that what we don't have is what's going to solve our problems or building up a fantasy in our mind that something else or some other relationship is going to be the good life and this one is not the good life. We get to thinking about relationships like we think about cars when we get tired of the old one and want something nice and new that will make us happy. This is wrong from beginning to end. The conclusion of this whole passage is this. God is serious about these things, and we haven't been serious enough about them. That we would even be shocked to discuss it shows us that we are not serious enough about these things. But this, this is the good life. Forget today what fantasy you've entertained about what will make you happy. And rather, give over your heart and mind to Jesus Christ as Lord. Say, listen, I've thought and had ideas and dreamed about and created some romantic thoughts about this or that thing that I think will make me happy and feel good, but I believe you, Jesus, that this, what you've given me, this marriage, this is the good life. And so I'll lay down my life just like Christ did for the same people that Christ laid his life down for, this family. Do you feel like you're just owned by sin in this area? Do you feel like you have no control over yourself? That that lust, evil desires, they're just in your heart and they come up and you have no control to stop them? I've got good news for you today. Well, first bad news, then good news. Bad news is, you're right, we're slaves to sin. Good news is Christ. Christ breaks the slavery to sin. There is, in Jesus Christ, a strength in order to overcome and endure. Augustine, St. Augustine, they call him. He had this very problem. You go and read his confessions. The thing that Augustine confesses over and over again, the thing that grieves him so much, is this sort of sin. He hates that he daily desires to go to the theaters, which for him means this kind of inappropriateness. That's the entertainment he's going to, is something burlesque. Yet this is how he's filled his time and taught himself how to feel, uh, fill his time. And he's grieved by it. He feels like he has no control over himself. Augustine, he, even, he has a child by a woman he's not married to and then never marries. He doesn't know what to do about these things. And this, this self-loathing, because of this very issue, is what drives him from religion to religion. Platonism first, and then Manichaeism. And finally, he hears about Christ, that there's forgiveness. But not just forgiveness and then leaving you there in your sin. There's forgiveness and strength to follow and live a right, good life before God. Augustine finds this in Jesus Christ, and you can find this as well. Martin Luther famously said, Pecca fortier, said fortius fide. That's the Latin for sin boldly, but believe even more boldly. Martin Luther is famous for saying this because that's quite the statement to make. What do you make of this? What do you think, church? He says, sin boldly, but believe even more boldly. I'm not sure this is great advice, and it's Martin Luther, and I'm not Lutheran, so I'm okay with that. Though I appreciate a great deal that he taught. It's actually, several generations later, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran, who says, the way you're supposed to understand Martin Luther is admit your sin boldly and believe boldly. Amen. Uh, 
Bonhoeffer in his uh, rehabilitation or his interpretation of Luther, I think is far better than Luther's original. Although Luther, Luther, this is quintessential Luther, <laughs> sin boldly, believe even more boldly. He never knew anything gray. It was all black and white and violent and passionate. Bonhoeffer says what he means, what you should do is this. Admit sin boldly and believe all the more boldly. Do you feel owned in your sin? Do you feel like you just belong to lustful passions? Here's the direction forward for you that you can find just like Augustine did. Admit sin boldly. Amen. Declare to God fully and completely today, I'm not all right. I don't even want what's right. How pitiable am I? But then admitting boldly, you believe all the more boldly that this God of ours is a God who forgives. This God of ours is a God who desires to forgive you. This God of ours is a God who has been patient with you all of these years because his desire is that you should come to know him. He's not just loving towards us, but he's loving and loving and loving towards us and patient. So go to him today and confess boldly, but believe all the more boldly. And then in the strength that God gives us, let us follow Jesus Christ as our Lord. And in that, we'll find the good life we're looking for. Father God, I thank you that you're so gracious towards us. I thank you that you didn't leave us here floundering, uncertain of what we should do. I thank you that you've pointed out to us how we can find joy in you. I pray that you give us strength to obey today and strength to follow you. Jesus, I thank you that you're so patient with us. And I thank you that your grace and forgiveness is not something we can exhaust. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.